We are, we are starting a new series this morning, and uh, this series is in Second Peter, and so um, um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, but we're going to be talking about, in this series, the importance of knowing the truth. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there that is not truth. And so it's important that, that we know the truth. So today we're going to be talking about the necessity of true knowledge. And we're going to find that in Second in Peter chapter 1. And we're looking at verses 1 to 4 this morning. But I want to start with a question this morning. And, and, and I want you to think about this question. And that is, if you knew you were going to die next week, what would you talk about today? If you absolutely knew that next week, by the end of next week, your life is over, what would you talk about? It's quite a question, isn't it? As I began studying for this message, I felt the Lord was leading me to preach on the book of Second Peter. And as I began reading this book, one of the things that I like to do before I start a series of messages in a book is just to saturate my mind with the book and read through it over and over and over again. Now, it's easier on small books like Second Peter to do that. Some of the bigger books got to bite it off in smaller chunks, like seven chapters at a time, and allow it just to saturate. But as I began reading this book, one of the things that really jumped out at me was that Peter knew that he was about to die. He knew that. And, and Peter wrote this letter around 66 A.D., um, And he he died at the hands of the Romans one year later. And so it seems that Peter knew as he set out to write this letter that his time really was short. Uh, Look with me at what he he writes there near the beginning of this this particular letter in verses 13 down through uh, verse 15, 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 13, yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, that was his body, to stir up, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So let me ask you again, if you knew that you were about to die, what would you want to pass on to somebody else? What would you consider to be the most important truth that you told those closest to you? Hopefully it would, it, it would concern things that actually mattered the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth of salvation by grace, the truth of eternal matters. All of those, all of those superficial things, when you're ready to die, just pass away, don't they? They just disappear. You just don't, you, you, you don't think about you know, who, who upset who in basketball games and who's got the best record in, in football or, or whatever. You, those things don't matter anymore. And so the things that matter are the things about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are always thankful 
that Peter had time to write about the things that mattered to him. So with that, I want us to just look at the things that matter to the Apostle Peter this morning. And I, I just want to share a couple of background thoughts as we began this study on the importance of knowing the truth. And so first of all, we need to understand, I believe that, um, that, that Brian taught, went through the book, book of First Peter with you uh, not too long ago. And so First Peter was written just before the persecution under the Roman Empire Nero, just before that all began. And if you want to read about some horrible persecution, you just go back into, into history and you can read about what Nero done uh, to the Christians during his reign. And so 1 Peter was written before the persecution began, whereas 2 Peter was written a couple years later when persecution had become intense. It was about the year of, six, uh, of 64 A.D. to 67 A.D., but where 1 Peter addressed concerns that were on the outside of the church, namely the, the suffering for the cause of Christ, and enduring times of great persecution, Second Peter, on the other hand, addressed concerns about what was happening inside the church, namely the infiltration of false teachers. So in the one letter, he's talking about all of the enemies on the outside of the church, and, and, and sometimes we think, well, that's great. We, we, we'd like them to be out there. We don't want them in here. But then he begins to talk about the enemies that are in the inside of the church. So here is a short letter, just three chapters long, totaling 61 verses. Very easy to sit down and just read it through every day. And yet the message is a message of urgency. It is a message of, of extreme warning. Peter is concerned that we, that we embrace, that we brace ourselves for, for uh, a battle. Because there's a theological battle that is going on, theological error and moral compromise that we find in our world today. So Peter is probably writing at this particular time from a Roman prison in the year somewhere between A.D. 64 and A.D. 67, waiting for his execution. He knows it's going to happen, and he's just waiting. And so through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he begins to write this letter. You can see with your Bibles open that Peter... <clears throat> speaks of his approaching death in this first chapter. He refers to his, his physical body as a, as a tent or a tabernacle. There, there in verse 14, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, I, I need to set it aside. And then in verse 15, he adds, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. That is, after my departure, after I've died, I want you to remember the things that I wrote to you here. And one of the most important, probably most the, 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 the most memorable passage, if you will, in this short letter, Peter addresses his concern about false teachers that are inside of the church. In fact, it is, it is in my opinion that the key passage of the entire letter is found in chapter 2 and verses 1 to 3, where he says, But there 
were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them and bringing on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be um, uh, blasphemed, by covetousness, they will ex- exploit you with destructive words for a long time. Their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. This, this, these verses here, I believe, address Peter's main concern in his letter. You see, he's concerned that we know the truth in order to be able to combat the truth. And that, that is why our series in Second Peter here is entitled, The Importance of Knowing the Truth. Now, the best way to be able to... Um, did I go too far there? The best way to be able to combat truth, combat that which is false, is by knowing what is true. That's the best way. So we could sum up Peter's major concern in this brief letter with the phrase, know the truth. So let's look at our verses today. Verses 1 down through 4, Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for allowing us the opportunity today to study this important book. As we look at our world, we see that there are many false teachers. We see that there is a lot of heresy. There are many people who are being led astray. Help us, Father, as a church to boldly proclaim truth and not apologize for it because it is your word. And so I pray that you would fill me today with your spirit, that I would say those things that you would have me to say, and that our lives would be changed because we had an opportunity to be here to worship you today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <clears throat> there was a school teacher once that asked a question to her class. She said, what is false doctrine? Well, a little boy that was in the room, he raised his hand right away. Immediately, he was all excited because he knew the the answer to that question. And the only problem was, was he had misheard the question. He thought the teacher asked, what is false doctrine? And so he raised his hand and he said, it is when the doctor gives the wrong stuff to people who are sick. False doctrine. And though he misunderstood doctrine for doctrine, that boy's definition is about as close to Peter's concern 
here in this letter that you can get. Giving the wrong stuff to people who are sick. And when you think about it, we're all sick, aren't we? We are all sinners. Some people in the world are sinners who are on their way to heaven because of the grace of God, and they've accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. There are other sinners who are on their way to hell because they refuse to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. But we all need help. And the Bible addresses our needs, but, but it can help us only as God intends when it is rightly interpreted and rightly understood and rightly explained. Anything less will be false doctoring, giving the wrong stuff to people who are sick. Now, there's an awful lot of false doctoring going on in our world today. False doctrine abounds on television on radios, on the internet, in churches all across our country. False teaching and theological error was Peter's major concern in his day, and it remains a major concern in our day today. And so the best way to recognize that which is false is to know that which is true. And, and, and Brian talked about that a little bit this last Wednesday night. We need to know what is true so that what false comes along, we can spot it right away. We don't need to study the false doctrines. We just need to study the Bible and know what the Word of God says, and then we'll know the truth and we'll see false doctrine when it pops up. So Peter begins his letter with the foundational truth of the Christian experience, and he speaks to the Christian being a partaker of divine natures. And we see that right here in, in the middle of verse 4. And we, we might underline that phrase there in the middle of verse 4, saying, knowing that shortly I must, or verse 4, uh, by which has been given to us exceeding great precious promises, that through these you may be, and there it is, partakers of the divine nature. It's a phrase that refers to the new birth. Um, it's similar to what Peter wrote in his previous letter back in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 22, where he referred to the Christian as being born again. You remember, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And so if you are a Christian this morning, you are a partaker of divine nature. And it's not that you become a god in any way or that you are even a, a little god, as some false teachers will tell us today. It is not that somehow you enter into God, but rather that God enters into you. You see, God indwells the Christian by his Holy Spirit when the Christian receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's why we never lose our salvation, because God... God indwells, he comes into us, he enters us. And so, so Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, in whom also after that ye believe you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. We have been sealed. God indwells you by his Holy Spirit, and he doesn't take that away from you once you become one of his children. And so you are then, like Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 8, in Christ Jesus. 
In that sense, Christians are partakers of the divine nature. So in these last in, in, in these four verses that we have before us this morning, Peter lays the foundational truths of the Christian experience. In other words, he's writing to Christians here. And so I would like to point out three things for our consideration this morning. So the first thing that we need to know is our position in Christ. We need to know as Christians, what is our position in Christ? And verses 1 and 2 lays that out for us. Verses 1 and 2 are, of course, introductory to the letter, but they, are all, they also speak to the Christian's position. And so by this, we mean, that, that mean the Christian standing. In other words, the way that God the Father sees the Christian and regards the Christian that is our position. Our position before God is something that takes place at the moment we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It's an act that takes place in glory. And so he sees us through the blood of Christ when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So here we have Simon Peter, a bondservant. He, he talks about himself here. That is his position. Now, it's interesting, when I, when I read letters in, in the New Testament, and particularly right here we see that, oftentimes letters 2,000 years ago did what we ought to be doing today, in my opinion, when we write letters. In other words, at the very beginning, identify ourselves. Identify ourselves who we are. So here's Peter saying, I'm the guy. This letter comes to you by way of the guy in the gospel, who frequently spoke before he thought, <laughs> who was always putting his foot in his mouth. But he said, listen, I am a changed man now. I am two things here in, verses, in, in verse 1. I am a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So note the position before the title. He is a bondservant. That is his position. His title is an apostle of Jesus Christ. So position before title. Peter could have said that he was an apostle first. That's what most of us would do if we were given the chance. We would have bragged about our title. I mean, aren't we in our day-to-day -day so quick to give out our business card and to say, look who I am. I'm this person. This is my title. But before he refers to his title, Peter talks about his position. He said, I'm a bondservant. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, we're all slaves. Every one of us is either a slave to sin or we are a slave to Jesus Christ. No one is ever truly free in the sense of never being under the power of another. We, we like to think of ourselves here in America as being free. We live in the land of the free and the brave, and we are free to do whatever we want to do, but we are slave to Christ or to Satan. There's no such thing as being totally free. So we are born slaves to sin, and freedom means that we exchange masters. We exchange masters. We once were slaves to sin, and if we're a slave to sin, who is our master? Satan. We are now a slave to Jesus Christ once we have put our faith and trust in Christ and accepted his finished work on the cross of Calvary. And now we are a slave to Jesus Christ. 
And so the kind of slavery we were destined to, to enjoy, a slavery, a sla slavery that is at once freedom, which becomes a supernatural paradox, doesn't it? We think, I'm free, but I'm a slave. We were designed to be servants of God. That's, what, that's where we have our joy. That's where we have our fulfillment. And the problem is, is so many people in the world, particularly those who are still a slave to Satan, they're basically, they're just trying to find happiness. They're trying to find joy. They're trying to find fulfillment in their life, but they're looking in all the wrong places. Amen. And then for Christians, oftentimes we have the freedom. We are, we are slaves to Christ, but then we give that up and we try to find happiness in our jobs in our marriages, in our relationships, and those things fall apart and we say, what is going on? What's the problem here? Well, you're trying to find your fulfillment and your identity in the wrong person. We need to go back to Christ because we are slave to Christ and to God. And that's where we'll find joy. Now, yes, in the midst of that joy, then all of these other things that we have in our life are gifts to us from God, and we will enjoy those things too, but not if we get them flipped upside down. We have to find our joy in Christ because he is our master. Well, then Peter refers to himself, secondly, as an apostle. This is his title, Apostle of, jo of, of Jesus Christ. So here is his authority in writing this letter. Apostles were called by God and had personally witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So position first, then title. And Peter, Peter adds to his, his writing in, uh, in, in verse 1b when he goes on and says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter is writing to Christians, and he said, Christians are those who have obtained like precious faith. Now that word precious there is a word that, that may conjure up a number of things in our mind. We, we think of a child, a child's precious. We think of a little kitty. Some people think they're precious. <laughs> problem is they grow up to be cats. If they grew up to be dogs, they'd be okay. I'm just kidding. Amen. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend people who love cats. <laughs> I'm just not a cat person. Some other objects may be special to us. And sometimes we call those things that are special to us precious, don't we? The word here in the text is used to describe something of great value, something of great worth, something that uh, is so rare that a person is willing to sell all that he has in order to obtain it. The word precious modifies a word, and this is, this is important here. Precious modifies the word faith the Christian faith. The Christian faith then is what? It is a precious faith. And so in, in John 1.13, 
John is talking about those who have obtained this faith are those who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh, but of the will of man, or, or not of the will of man, but of God. And so we're born not of blood nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but we're born of God. So Christians have obtained a faith not by their own will, but as the result of God's opening their spiritual eyes in order that they might be able to see. Now, sometimes people brag about their salvation and how they, uh, you know, were able to become so good that they know they're going to go to heaven. But it is a result of God opening our spiritual eyes. God's work of regeneration gives the ability to understand and to receive Christ. And this is one reason the faith is so precious. But note this too, that the Christian faith is also an apostolic faith. Now you need to listen carefully what I'm saying here. Look again there at verse 1. As an apostle, Peter writes this, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us. Who is Peter? He's an apostle. With us. That is, with those of us who are apostles. And so saving faith in that sense is an apostolic faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints, Jude says. It is both a subjective and an objective faith. In other words, in order to be saved, you must believe in the, in, in the object or the content of what the apostles believed and what they proclaimed. You see, the Christian faith is not merely a personal faith. And it is personal, to be sure. But we must ask, what kind of personal faith is it? And the answer is, it is an apostolic faith. It is a faith that is the same faith as proclaimed by the apostles. So again, verse 1, to those who have attained the precious faith with us. We're not simply saved by faith through, as though faith were something that we just drummed up ourselves or defined ourselves or, or just decided, okay, this is what I'm going to believe, and so I'm really going to believe this, I'm going to have faith in this, and so this must get me to heaven. Our faith is the faith of the apostles, the same faith that they had. The faith once for all delivered to the apostles, the apostolic faith, defined specifically in the Bible as a faith in the life and work of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. There is no other faith that will save you. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. It is only in the life and work of Christ for sinners. He came to this earth to die that we might have eternal life. And so Peter defines this faith in the next phrase. Look at the next phrase there when he says, through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. There again is the Christian's position in Christ. So what kind of faith is apostolic faith? It is a faith that credits to the Christian the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God credits Christ's righteousness to us. So you see why it's so important that we believe that, that Christ lived and died in my place? 
that he shed his blood, that that is the only faith that is going to get us to heaven because that is the only thing that's going to credit the righteousness of Christ onto our account. So it's not an infused righteousness at all. As, as though righteousness was something that was injected into the Christian as a result of some, some sacramental works that they might have done, like, like their christening or their baptism or their taking communion or any of those things. It's not injected into us, but rather it is an imparted righteousness, a righteousness that is credited to the Christian, freely credited, imparted to the Christian as a transfer, a transfer of Christ's righteousness to the Christian. And that takes place in glory on the day that we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are justified, declared righteous by God has nothing to do what we do in our life. It has nothing to do with our background. It has nothing to do with what church we go to. It has nothing to do whether we were sprinkled or dunked or whether we walk the aisles or whether we put money in the offering plate. It doesn't have anything to do with any of that. It has only to do with the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. And when we accept Christ as our Savior, we are declared righteous by God. We are sealed with the Holy spirit and we never lose what God gives us and so those today who would claim that we lose our salvation false doctoring is what it's all about and so this is our position this is our standing in Christ so when a person says do you know where you're going to spend eternity do you absolutely know we're not bragging about it we're just saying yes because this is what God told me. This is what the Word of God says, and that never changes. It is absolutely certain. So if we cannot absolutely say that I know I'm spending eternity at heaven because of what Jesus Christ did for me, then we better do some real good searching of our soul. And it's sad sometimes I, I hear Christians even when I talk to them or ask them, are, are you going to go to heaven when you die? Well, I hope so. I hope so. Do you understand what God says in his word? Have you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you been declared righteous? Are you dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? There's no hope so about it. We're absolutely 100% sure because that is our position. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Now, please understand, it's not that their sins don't count. It's not even that God does not count their sins at all. It is that God does not count their sins against them. Well, then upon whom does God count their sins? He counts them against his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he did on the cross of Calvary for us. And so God made him, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, he didn't know any sin, that we might be made the righteousness. Did you see that? Made the righteousness of God in him. It's a transfer of Christ's righteousness to us. 
He gives to him our sin, and he gives to us his righteousness. Is that a deal or what? <laughs> I mean, that's great. Jesus gets all of my sin and gets punished for everything that I do in my life, ever did or ever will do, and I get his righteousness. I get his clothing. I get his position in front of God the Father. That's the Christian standing. And will you note at the end of the verse, the end of verse 1, that Jesus is called God and Savior? Paul writes of our God and, and, and Savior, or Peter does, making this verse one of the clearest biblical declarations of the deity of Jesus Christ that we have in the Bible. He is God and Savior. Now, do you realize that there are a lot of false teachers out there today who claim to be Christian teachers and pastoring churches who say that there's nowhere in the Bible that it refers to Jesus as being God? Not true. The Bible refers to Christ as God, and this is one of the clearest texts that we can get our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second person of the Holy Trinity has always existed. There never has been a time when the Son of God did not exist. I like the way R.C. Sproul says it. He used to say that, that the second person of the Trinity has no birthdays. Now, we, we, we always celebrate the birthday of Jesus at Christmas time. But that is his humanity part. Before then, he was in glory, and he has no birthday. Because there's there was never a day that Jesus, the Son of God, was born. That boggles our mind, doesn't it? It's hard for us to understand. He has existed for all eternity past. He clothed himself when he came to earth in the likeness of man in order to provide salvation. Now we're ready for verse 2. And uh, we've been going for quite a while now. So I think we'll just let verse 2 kind of speak for itself. It's just kind of a, a, a common greeting here uh, in, in, in verse 2, talking about the peace, grace and peace to the believers of the church. So we'll just read it and then go right on into this next part. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So... Uh, when we come now to verse 3, uh, we've, we've looked at our position in Christ, and now we want to consider our power in Christ. Verse 3 goes on to say, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So, so let's just meditate, if you will, on that, on that truth for just a moment. It's a wonderful truth. Peter says, His divine power has given to us what? All things that pertain to life and godliness. Okay, think about it. God has given to the Christian all things, all things that pertain to life. His divine power has, has given us everything that we need for a godly life. 
So what we see here is that God has by his own action given us everything that is necessary for living a truly godly life. Are we living a truly godly life? Are there things in our life that we, we would rather not do? <laughs> is that God's fault? Or have we, have we allowed Satan to step back in and have control of our life? You see, God has given us everything that we need in order to live a godly life. In and by His power, God has given you everything you need in your life. However, that's going to work out this week in your life through the knowledge of Christ. So God, God has given you everything you need in your workplace through the knowledge of Christ. God has given you everything you need in your current health challenges through the knowledge of Christ. God has given you everything you need in your present problems, your current grief, your present situation, whether it's at school or church or, or, or in, in, in the workplace or the marketplace, your impending legal battles, your court cases, your, your, your faltering relationships, your life changes. God has given you everything that you need for life, everything necessary for living right now, living a truly godly life. Everything. There's no exclusion clause there. So this divine power mentioned in verse 3 refers to the present tense power right now. Christianity is not just a look back to when, when you were forgiven of your sins and a looking forward to a better place. The Christian faith is also a present tense kind of living. One, one preacher said it like this. He said, Christianity is more than forgiveness for past and heaven for the future. If the gospel only addresses your past failure and your future hopes, it isn't big enough for your life today. We need it for today, don't we? We need it for daily living. And so the gospel addresses your life today. His divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life. So Christians, God will give you peace when you're unsettled. He will give you love when you're hurt. He will comfort you when you are crying. By his divine power, God is giving you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything that you need, God is giving you through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, now remember, this is a promise. A promise that comes only to those who, verse 1, have obtained like precious faith with Peter and the other apostles. It's connected to that. You must have the apostolic faith of verses 1 and 2 in order to, do, to enjoy the divine power of verse 3. It's all connected. And then you must live your life, verse 3, as a life bound up with godliness. Sometimes we wonder, well, why don't I experience God doing something great in my life? And, and, and we look at a person's life and they're not bound up with godliness. They're living like the world. How can we expect the blessings of God when we look like the world? We have like precious faith with the apostles, and we have these promises, and they're bound up with godliness. Do you see the word there in verse 3? Godliness means God-centered living. So God grants us through his power everything we need to live this life like we live for the glory of God. 
Let me say that if you are not living for God, a life driven by passion for God, for delighting in God, then you are not living, period, as a Christian. The Christian life is a life lived for the glory of God. It is a life that we experience to the extent that we grow in the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue. You see that in the last part of verse 3 there when he says, um, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. We become more God-centered when we grow in our understanding of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And the one of the ways that we grow through the knowledge of Him is by knowing His Word. We've got to read it. We've got to get into it. Some people say, well, I'm just not a good reader. I'm just not really good at that. Well, get a recording. Get on the Internet. There's plenty of places you can listen to the Word. And the more you read it, and the more you hear it, the more you want to read it and hear it. It's kind of the opposite. In in our physical life, the more food we eat, the less hungry we become, right? And the less we want to eat. When you start eating of the Word of God and feeding yourself the Word of God, the more you feed yourself, the more you want and you just keep eating and eating. I don't know whether you've ever experienced that. Sit down and begin to read the Bible for, for devotion time, and you get done with the section, and just like it's so intriguing, you just go on, and you go on, and you go on. You're just hungry for the Word. You're growing in the knowledge. And so, so one of the ways we grow is through the knowledge of Him is by reading His Word, by knowing His precious promises, which take us to verse 4 in our final point here this morning. We have said to know your position in Christ, to know your power in Christ, and now know, know your promises in Christ. Know your promises in Christ. He says here, by which we, by which have given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust. So God has granted to the Christian exceedingly great and precious promises, and those promises have to do primarily with our salvation. The promises have to do primarily with what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature, uh, to share in the nature of God, and to become increasingly like Jesus. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, he says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And then John says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And then Paul tells us in Romans 8, 28 and 29, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did. For no, he also did predestine to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And then Paul tells us in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, for our conversation is in heaven, from which we also we look at the Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his 
glorious body. These are promises. These promises are included in the power to overcome sin. This, this seems to be the idea behind Peter's words in the last part of verse 4 when he writes of the Christian here, having escaped the corruption of that, that is in this world through lust. When we are saved, we exchange masters. We once were slaves to sin. We are now a slave to Jesus Christ. Sin no longer has mastery over us. Oh, we still struggle, yes. But as partakers of divine nature, we have the ability to overcome sin and temptation, not in our own power, but because of what Christ has provided. What God provides to us, he's provided everything. And so sin is no longer your master. Don't believe your adversary, the devil, who tells you that you will forever be a failure, forever defeated, stuck in a cycle of never-ending sin. It's not true. You have, as Peter says in verse 4, escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust. You are a partaker of the divine nature. So as a partaker of divine nature, thank God this morning for your position in Christ, your power in Christ, and your promises in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for what you have given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for, for the fact that we are your child, forever your child, because of the finished work of Jesus. And I pray, Father, if there's a person here today that's never accepted Christ as their Savior, I pray the day that they would experience the tugging of your Holy Spirit on their heart, giving them understanding of truth, that they would come to know Jesus. Father, help us to be equipped to fight against false doctrine and corrupt morality and the evil that is in our world today. Help us to know the truth. Help us to walk in righteousness, to glorify you with our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Once again, turn to number 607. Just say, one of these days we will see him face to face. Amen. It's coming a day when no heartache shall come, no more clouds in the sky, no more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. There'll be no sorrow there, 
No more burdens to bear, no more sickness, no pain, no more parting over there. Forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see and I look upon his face the one who saved me by his grace when he looks me by the hand and leads me through the promised land what a day glorious day that will be what a day glory be my Jesus I shall see look upon his face the one who saved me by his grace he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land what a day glorious day that will be